0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hello out there in radio land, Kevin here from Left of the Valley, flying solo tonight because we have an extra episode for you guys, and hopefully a nice one, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. Tonight's episode is a debate that was put on by the our friends at the Fraser Valley Atheists, Skeptics, and Humanists. The question is, did Jesus exist? And it's historian Richard Carrier from Columbia University versus Michael Horner. Master of Philosophy at Trinity Western University, a local time. Now, we have this in two clips. It's a fairly long uh, debate. It lasts about an hour and a half, a bit more than that. So uh, sit back and enjoy. I will uh, put
0: this on. Where
2: is it? This
1: is great. Can't find it right away. Uh-huh. Okay, I will put this on and enjoy this, and uh, we'll come back halfway through and uh, put the second one. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the debate as much as we did. Thank you so much, uh, the guys uh, from uh, FB Ash for putting this on. It was a great time by all. Enjoy.
3: Um, I mentioned as well a little bit about our group, uh, FB Ash, Fraser Valley Atheist, Skeptics, and Humanists, for those of you who don't know. Um, we're a local atmosphere group, and we're basically a group of like-minded people that meet every Sunday. Um, don't uh, miss the irony in that. Um, and we get together and talk about current events and, and things like that. We meet at legal grounds at 12 p.m. on every Sunday. So anybody that's interested in coming, it's open to everybody. Um, at this point, I'd like you to, to ask for you to turn your f- cell phone ringers off so that we don't disturb any of the, uh, the speakers today. Um, the format for today's debate, each speaker will have 20 minutes to present their case. They will follow that by a 10 minute rebuttal then an eight minute rebuttal and then five minute closing arguments uh, following that we're going to have q and a for 45 minutes uh, we understand that this is a, a very um, uh, emotional topic perhaps and people when they get up to the mics they're going to want to make statements and things like that we would ask you to please limit your comments on the mic to questions we have probably a lot of people that are going to want to get up there so we want to make sure we get everybody in as possible so limit your questions to 30 seconds make it a question and make it topical on on what we're talking about today. We're going to have two microphones set up on either side here, so uh, feel free to grab either one, line up behind the Kevin or Karen, and they'll be happy to help you out there. Um, At this point, I'd like to introduce the speakers. Arguing for the affirmative is Michael Horner. Michael is a part-time instructor in philosophy at Trinity Western University and Summit Pacific College with a master's in philosophy from the University of Toronto. He has 40 years of experience presenting the case for the Christian Truth Claims on university campuses with Power to Change through more than 80 public debates and hundreds of lectures on Canadian and American campuses. His philosophical interests are in the philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, and the philosophy of history, and wherever those three subjects interact, as well as ethics. Mr. Horner is a member of the Society of Christian Philosophers and the Evangelical Evangelical Philosophical Society. Sorry. Uh, you can read his blog at PC, p2c.com slash Michael Horner. I'm sure we can get that to you if you want that later as well. His hobby is basketball and won a bronze medal at the World's Masters Games last summer in Italy, along with some of the other Abbotsford players. Welcome, Michael. Arguing for the negative is Dr. Richard Carrier. Richard Carrier is a world-renowned author and speaker, as well as a professional historian, published philosopher, and prominent defender of the American free thought movement. Dr. Carrier has appeared across Canada and the UK and on American television and London radio defending sound historical methods as well as ethical worldview and secular naturalism. His books and articles received international attention. With a Ph.D. from Columbia University in ancient history, he specializes in intellectual history of Greece and Rome, particularly ancient philosophy, religion, and science, with emphasis on the origins of Christianity and the use and progress of science under the Roman Empire. He also is a published expert in modern philosophy of naturalism as a worldview. Richard has written several books, including On the Historicity of Jesus, Why We Might Have Reason to Doubt, Proving History, Bayes' Theorem and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, and sense and goodness without God. Richard Carrier. <laughs> Gentle- gentlemen, um, Kevin will be timing and giving you guys cue cards as far as uh, where you sit with the time. At this point, I'll turn it over to Michael to uh, start. Well, I want to
0: thank Jeff Gruden, Nancy, and Nancy Wee douger and and many others whose names I don't know, from the uh, Fraser Valley skeptics and humanists, who really did all the work for uh, setting up this debate. And they've been extremely kind and very good to work with, and I look forward to a continuing friendship with all of them. I also want to thank Richard for his willingness to send me free PDF copies of his two books on this issue. He didn't have to do that, and I appreciate his kindness in doing so. I want to thank all for taking a Saturday afternoon to come out to a debate like this on such an important topic. I know that both Richard and I enjoy a good intellectual exchange done in a civil and respectful manner and I hope that you will as well. This debate has some unusual features to it. First of all, we have agreed that it will be about whether Jesus actually existed or not. It's not about whether the Gospel versions of Jesus, the miracle-working, resurrected from the dead Jesus existed but just whether there was a historical Jesus at all. Now, this will probably be disappointing to both believers and unbelievers uh, in that issues about the gospel version of Jesus are very important, and I, I get that. Both groups have very strong feelings about those issues, but Richard and a small group of other people, about six, maybe a few more, if I have read his blog correctly, who call themselves mythicists, are making the claim that there never was a historical person at all behind the Jesus accounts. Now, this is quite a radical claim in scholarly circles, and I think Richard and the Mythicists—that kind of sounds like a pop group in the '60s, doesn't it? <laughs> Richard and the Mythicists—are trying to get their view more acceptance as a legitimate scholarly view in the academic community. My goal today in this debate is to put Richard's thesis to the test to, to see whether it really deserves a legitimate place in the scholarly discussion about who Jesus was. So my goal, then, is just to argue that there was a guy, a real historical figure that existed, since that is all that it would uh, to take, if I was successful, to refute the mythicist position. If the debate got off track onto the Gospel of Jesus, then the focus would not be on Richard's hypothesis. It would become a debate about whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Um, and rather than on whether there was a historical Jesus at all. Now, debates about the resurrection are very important, and we have both done them before. You can access two, uh, two good ones that Richard was involved in here online uh, at the links that are on the screen. But today's debate is about the much less frequent claim that Jesus did not exist at all. Now, it's important to understand how radical a claim this really is. Among experts in this area, of all experts of all stripes—liberal, moderate, or conservative—very few scholars would hold to the view that Jesus did not exist at all. Among historians, classicists, Greco-Roman scholars, biblical and New Testament scholars, there just aren't a large number who hold to this position. Even if they deny everything supernatural about Jesus, they do not think that there was no historical Jesus. Richard and the mythicists have a huge hurdle to clear. Richard admits this in axiom number six. Pages 29 and 30 in his first book, Proving History, um, on this topic, there he admits that the prima facie evidence for Jesus and the consensus of experts, which he defines as 95% to be a a consensus, 95% of the experts disagree with him. He acknowledges that this does make for a higher prior probability that Jesus did exist and that he has a higher burden of proof to meet because of this. I can only report on what the experts in this field say about these issues and then comment, as a philosopher, on any logical problems I see in the reasoning process of mythicists and historicists. Also, one cannot do this investigation fairly and honestly with an anti-supernatural bias. One must be open to the possibility of the supernatural without either presupposing it or ruling it out a priori. i bring these epistemological issues up now because I do see them as potential problems within Richard's case as I have studied it. Now, there's some history to this claim that Jesus never existed. Around the turn of the 20th century, in the heyday of the so-called history of religions school, scholars in comparative religions collected parallels to Christian beliefs in other religion, religious movements, and some thought to explain those beliefs as a result of the influence of such myths. This view gained some followers in the Western world, especially in Germany, the locus of much of the critical theology being done at that time. Uh, and some argue this was because of the anti-Semitism that was prevalent in the West, and especially in Germany. They did not want Jesus to be Jewish. It fit their worldview much better if Jesus was borrowed from the pagans. But even a decade prior to the Second World War, most scholars in Germany recognized that this wasn't a good historical basis for this view, and it was rejected. Mettinger reports, from the 1930s, a consensus has developed to the effect That the dying and rising gods died and did not, or but did not return to rise or live again. Those who still think differently are looked upon as residual members of an almost extinct species. Today, scarcely any scholar thinks of myth as an important interpretive category for the Gospels. Scholars came to realize that pagan mythology is simply the wrong interpretive context for understanding Jesus of Nazareth. James D.G. Dunn. Who is not a conservative scholar makes the uh, flat disclaimer myth is a term of at least doubtful relevance to the study of Jesus and the Gospels. Why? Well, because Jesus and his disciples were first century Palestinian Jews and it's against that background that they must be understood. The Jewish reclamation of Jesus over the last six decades or so helped to make um, uh, unjustified any understanding of the Gospels portrait of Jesus as significantly shaped by pagan mythology. But some other people from the atheist, skeptic, and freethinkers community have written some books or produced videos like Zeitgeist in the last 15 to 20 years that are trying to get the idea that Jesus was borrowed from pagan myths back into the discussion. Zeitgeist made some of the same old arguments from 100 years ago that have been long rejected by scholars. Even Richard has criticized the mistakes and bad scholarship of Zeitgeist. And he's criticized criticized some parts of the books and, uh, that were written and affirmed other parts. But now he's attempting to make an improved scholarly case for it. My case for the existence of Jesus is we have good reasons to believe that Jesus died by crucifixion and of course if he died he must have existed. And we do not have enough good reasons to believe that Jesus did not exist and was completely mythical. I will only cover the first one in my opening speech and leave the second one to the rebuttals. So, one, Jesus died by crucifixion. There are four reasons for believing that Jesus of Nazareth died as a result of being crucified. First of all, it's multiply attested by both Christian and non-Christian sources. In non-Christian sources, we begin with Josephus. It's highly probable that Josephus, the Jewish historian under the employment of Rome, reported Jesus being condemned to the cross in the original version of the Antiquities of the Jews, um, chapter uh, 18, verses 63 64. There are good reasons to accept a reconstructed version that leaves out three very probable Christian additions that, were, that we find in the extant manuscripts. John Meyer, arguably the most respected New Testament scholar alive today, provides the modified version of Josephus minus the Christian alterations. It's often called Testimonium Flavianum or just the Testimonium. At that time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth of pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians, named after him, has not died out. Now Myers argues that this remaining text appears in every extant Greek and Latin manuscript of the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 18. Second, given Josephus' mention two chapters later of Jesus who was called Christ, without any further explanation of who he was, the mention of Jesus in this passage makes perfect sense. Third, the vocabulary and grammar of Meyer's modified version cohere well with Josephus's style and language and not with the New Testament. The Josephus scholar, Louis Feldman, when asked when, where contemporary scholarship stands on the authenticity of the Testimonium Flavianum, he responded, my guess is that those who in some manner accept it will be at least three to one and as much as five to one. The Jewish scholar uh, Giza Vermes agrees, declaring the whole notice a forgery would amount to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Indeed, in recent years, most of the experts, including myself, he says, adopted a middle course, accepting that part of the account is authentic. Second non-Christian source, Tacitus, writing in AD 116-117, about the burning of Rome in the first century, and Nero's attempts to squash the rumors that he was responsible. The Roman historian Tacitus reports, therefore, to squash the rumor. Sorry, I couldn't get an up-to-date photo there. That's the, that's the most recent one I can get. Uh, squash the rumor that Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians a group hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for the moment, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated this evil, but also in the city of Rome. Now this text is occasionally questioned, but the vast majority of scholars accept it. It shows no sign of Christian influence. The style belongs to Tacitus. It fits in the context of of Rome burning, and it's doubtful that a Christian interpolator would have penned such insulting remarks of Christians. According to Robert Van Verst, Tacitus seems to use his sources carefully and he writes an account whose basic accuracy has never been seriously impeached. What about Christian sources? Well, all four of the canonical Gospels report Jesus' death by crucifixion, and even before the canonical Gospels were written in their current form, the death of Jesus was reported abundantly throughout all of Paul's letters, except one, and in the book of Hebrews and 1 Peter. Secondly, the reports are early. First of all, we have Paul's mention uh, of Jesus' death at crucifixion no later than A.D. 55 in First Corinthians. And in the book of Galatians, he said he preached that same message to those in Corinth in A.D. 51. Or, that is within 21 years after the crucifixion. Now, the earliest extant report of Jesus' death then is found in 1 Corinthians 15:3, and I'll read it in its context, 3 verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures; that He is buried; that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures; and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. Here the apostle Paul uses two terms, received and delivered, which indicate that he is passing on tradition in the careful manner used by various schools of the day. What he has received from others, he, ha- he has and is now also now faithfully passing on to them. Secondly, this passage contains numerous non Pauline traits, like the phrase in accordance with the scripture, found nowhere else in Paul's writings or in the entire New Testament. And Paul Paul prefers the phrase it is written. The phrase in the third day and the term the twelve are only used here by Paul. And these and other such examples, plus the parallel structure of the passage, have convinced most scholars that Paul is quoting an old Christian saying or tradition that pushes the date for this information about Jesus back to within just a few years after Jesus' death. Third, there are good reasons to think that this traditional saying came from the original early Jerusalem church leadership, where it all started. Paul puts a great deal of weight on tradition, in general, and especially on this tradition. It is very likely that Paul received this traditional saying from Peter and James during his first visit with him three years after his conversion. This means that this information about Jesus is from a few short years after Jesus' crucifixion, and more importantly, it comes from the purported eyewitnesses themselves. There are numerous other occasions uh, when Paul had contact with the early church leadership and probably received more eyewitness testimony. Even Dale Allison, no ally of conservative Christianity, agrees that indeed Paul knew Peter and James, and presumably others, who claimed to have seen the risen Christ, risen Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, is not folklore. And this traditional saying goes back to within two to five years after the event. This is an extremely close time frame for historical sources. Even Robert Funk in the very skeptical Jesus Seminar claimed that it uh, is within two to three years of the events. If this saying, which tells us that Christ died and was buried, not to mention raised on the third day, is to be trusted, it entails that Jesus existed which is all I'm trying to argue today in today's debate. Third reason for the crucifixion. The passion narratives appear largely credible. Embarrassing elements weigh in favor of the presence of historical kernels in the stories of the passion of Christ in the final week of his life. There are a number of accounts of Jewish martyrs who acted bravely under circumstances of extreme torture and execution. In light of these accounts, reports of a weaker Jesus in similar circumstances, could be embarrassing and certainly would not further the spread of their message in either the Jewish or the Gentile world. Thus, it's very unlikely that the accounts of Jesus' arrest, torture, and death by crucifixion were fabricated. Elements in some of the peripheral details also lend credibility to the Passion account, particulars like the crowds following the one to be crucified, the breaking of the victim's legs on the cross, the removal of the body on the same day as the crucifixion, all which happened to Jesus, are mentioned in various other historical writings by Lucian, Cicero, Josephus, and Quintilian. Moreover, the only skeletal remains ever found of a crucified man discovered in Jerusalem in 1968 uh, had one of his shins smashed. The burial account in the, in the Passion story about Jesus uh, is found in all four Gospels and is probably historical. The inclusion of Joseph of Arimathea as the one who buried Jesus in his own tomb, is one of the many reasons most scholars accept the accuracy of the burial story. It is highly unlikely that fictitious stories about a member of the Sanhedrin, the uh, 70-member Jewish religious uh, class, could have been pulled off uh, and passed off in that culture. This burial account found in Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, is also based on a very early source. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Caiaphas, was the high priest from A.D. 18 to 37. Now, the high priest is mentioned in Mark's source without using his name, though, which implies that Caiaphas was still the high priest when the story began circulating. If it had been in existence only after Caiaphas' term of office, his name would have had to have been used to distinguish him from who the next high priest was at the time. This means the story began circulating no later than A.D. 37, within the first seven years after the events. Moreover, the absence of competing burial stories further enhances the credibility of the biblical account of the burial. If the gospel tradition were a myth, one would expect to find conflicting traditions, especially in Jewish literature, from the Jewish religious leaders and so on, but there are none. Obviously, if Jesus was buried, it means Jesus died, and if Jesus died, it means Jesus lived, therefore Jesus existed. Fourth, Origin and The origin and spread of the early Christian movement from monotheistic Jews and their teaching that Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins implies that Jesus lived and died by crucifixion. In the first century, the Jews were fiercely monotheistic in a polytheistic world. For them to believe that one of their own countrymen was God would be unthinkable unless Jesus was real and said and did things that would cause such a radical change in their thinking. Martin Hengel, the German New Testament scholar, assures us that within 20 years after Christ's death, the earliest Christians believed in and worshipped Jesus as Lord and God. To suggest that these fiercely monotheistic Jews would just borrow pieces of stories of dying and rising gods from pagan religions around them and fabricate the existence of a man who did not really exist from these stories is just not plausible. The vast majority of Jews were not open to combining beliefs from pagan religions into Judaism, even if you could find a few, like maybe in the Qumran community. Even if there was enough presence of these pagan ideas in first-century Palestine, one would have to prove that there was a causal connection between those ideas and the beliefs of the early Jewish Christians. There's a good reason why the vast majority of scholars um, in this area have rejected this view for the past 70 years. A little behind here. Okay. And then, what would they gain from borrowing these pagan views? What was the upside? If you know that you are just fabricating these religious, this religious Frankenstein from various pagan myths, what motivates you to live lives of great sacrifice, even torture and death, for what you know is a fabrication? Liars make very poor martyrs. People don't sacrifice and die for a lie when they know it's a lie. And furthermore, who actually did this? None of the followers or family, uh, Jesus' family, ever denied that Jesus existed. A mythicist would actually have to deny that any of them existed as well. If you don't believe that Jesus existed, why believe that Peter, John, and James, and all the other so-called apostles, and Mary, his mother, existed? But their existence is based on the same documents as well. So, it gained them nothing as a torture. Um, and in summary, I'll just put up, uh, the final slide is up there, that Jesus died by, by crucifixion for those four reasons. And I'll turn it over to Richard now. Thank you.
4: I think I'm going to take this out so I can lay back a bit. (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, very good. Uh, there's, of course, there's never time uh, to cover everything in a debate because we're, we're up against the clock. So on a lot of points, I'm going to have to be brief. Uh, and to follow up, uh, to see all the arguments and evidence and further examination of this and the cited scholarship uh, on my every point, uh, you can consult my book on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, I spent six years developing that, uh, so everything is in there. But for now, just the most salient points. Um, Michael brought up uh, the consensus issue, and I have to address that because it is important. Uh, all that matters is, is what evidence the consensus is based on. In fact, several scholars have shown that the methods used to generate that consensus are faulty. I cite numerous of these studies uh, in my book, Proving History, and I show logical analysis showing that in that book as well. Uh, I have also found that the consensus is often based on incorrect or untrue fact claims. I'll give a few examples you'll see as we go along. So we have to re-examine the evidence, the case. We have to look back at it again. And we were at this point before, uh, back with the in the 70s, just before the 70s, no one would have doubted that Moses and the patriarchs existed. Then some radical scholars started proposing, well, the evidence shows that they probably didn't, that they're, they're fictional characters who were invented later. Uh, that is now the mainstream view within biblical scholarship. Uh, everybody now agrees that Moses didn't exist, uh, everyone who's not a fundamentalist Christian anyway. Uh, the mainstream scholarly view is that that they were invented, they are myths, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a myth, Exodus is a myth, and so on. So this has happened before. Uh, So when we're looking at Jesus, we need to do the same thing. We need to go back and not just lean on consensus, but we have to look at the evidence. When we do that, uh, we see the earliest documents, so the letters of Paul that are still deemed authentic. Um, Only seven are. Uh, The others are generally recognized by mainstream scholars as forgeries. Uh, When we just look at the ones that are still accepted as authentic, they show that Jesus appears to have been thought by Paul and his earliest Christians, even pre-Christians before him, Jesus was thought to be a pre-existent celestial being, who is revealing truths through revelations and messages in Scripture. And this is stated several times in the epistles, such as Romans 16, verses 25 to 26, in Philippians 2, and so on. There are no references in these letters to Jesus preaching other than from heaven, or being a preacher, having a ministry, or choosing or having disciples. Paul never mentions the word disciple. Or communicating by any means other than revelation or Scripture. And nor do the letters, these letters have, um, nor do they ever clearly place anything Jesus did on earth. They never put him in Galilee or anything like that. The idea of Jesus being a historical person walking around Galilee appears decades later in the Gospels. Now, I do propose that uh, there was an aspect of the history of religion school that was correct. Not everything they said was correct, but... They were right about one thing, is that Jesus is another personal savior god. And personal savior gods were a fashion at the time. There's tons of them. Every other national cult, uh, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Syrians, within the context of the Roman Empire, were developing these savior gods by combining Greek ideas with the local national cult and creating their own version of this cult that fit their own particular national cult and ideas. Now, all of these gods, they're all savior gods. They're all the son of God, or some of them are daughter of God. They all undergo a passion, using the exact same word, patheon. Uh, They all undergo a passion, some sort of suffering or struggle through which they gain power over death. Sometimes this passion isn't their actual death. Uh, They all obtain victory over death through their passion, which they then share with their followers. They all have stories about them set in human history on earth, yet none of them ever actually existed. So we have this pattern repeated again and again and again and again and again, and then finally when the Jews start doing the exact same thing that everybody else is doing around them, the coincidence is extre- the coincidence is extremely improbable unless it's the same phenomenon. And in all of these cases, we can't prove particular causality because we don't have the documentation to show it. But we see this spreading like an idea throughout all these cultures. The same pattern gets repeated and repeated and repeated, all within this culture that had constant communication with these ideas. So when we see the Jews doing the exact same thing that all the other national cults with national cultures within the Roman Empire did, uh, it's kind of obvious what's happening. Um, several. Several of these savior deities, these personal savior deities, are dying and rising gods just like Jesus, and there is definite evidence of that. I might hopefully get point to that get to that later. Some of them die and rise in supernatural realms, not on earth, and the goddess Inanna and the god Osiris are clear examples. We have very, very clear pre Christian texts that explicitly say that they die and explicitly say they rise in a new, more glorious body. Uh, In the case of Osiris, certainly in the case of Inanna, she is explicitly resurrected in Sumerian tablets that predate Christianity by more than a thousand years. We have other examples of this, uh, where they're clearly being resurrected, and they have new divine bodies once they've resurrected, just like Jesus did, and they go on to live in heaven just like Jesus did. So these are dying gods. They are resurrected gods, and Jesus fits this pattern again and again. And the evidence is pretty clear. There's not really any way to dispute this anymore. And even even beyond all of these similar uh, deities, it was also a common trend then to take gods that lived in supernatural realms and turn them into historical persons living at specific historical times and only later deified, it was claimed in these stories. Now, this happened to Romulus, Osiris, Hercules, Dionysus, and many other gods. They actually began as just gods that were worshipped in heaven or other supernatural uh, locations, but then stories were created that put them on earth, gave them biographies and the whole thing. So Jesus fits a pattern again in that respect. So the same trend could have happened to Jesus and the sequence of evidence, I believe, supports that it did. And that's the new argument that I'm advancing in my book. Um, In fact, we can add to this because Christianity was a Jewish cult. Uh, It might have gotten this general skeletal idea of how to create a new personal savior cult from surrounding cultures, but what they created was a Jewish version of it. It's definitely very thoroughly Jewish. And so it's notable that when, uh, when we look before Christianity, we know... Jewish theology already included a celestial son of God named Jesus. Uh, Shortly before Christianity arose and spread, the Jewish theologian Philo tells us that the the Jesus who is named in Zechariah 6 is actually not the historical priest usually assumed, but in fact a divine being whom Philo described throughout his writings as the firstborn son of God, the celestial image of God, God's agent of creation, God's celestial high priest, as well as the logos, uh, the word of God. These are all attributes of the Jesus worshipped in the New Testament. It's a very unlikely coincidence that some Jews knew of a celestial Jesus with all these exact same attributes before Christianity did, unless in fact what the Christians did is that they're talking about this same celestial figure, not a historical man. So that's the basic stuff there. Now let's look at uh, the arguments that Michael advanced. Um, I've already covered the issue of the dying gods uh, did not rise. That, that's definitely not true. They did rise. We have many examples of clearly resurrected deities in the record. He, got, he mentioned the idea that Judaism wasn't shaped by pagan theology. But of course, it, and I agree, the Zeitgeist films and things like that do a terrible job uh, of suggesting this. Um, it's not so much that they're paganizing Judaism, although the Samaritans had already done that. Uh, it's that they're getting the skeletal idea for a new way to have a salvation cult, and then they're creating a Jewish version of it. So it's not like they're adopting a pagan idea. They're, in their idea, improving Judaism. And Jews did this before. The idea of a burning hell, the idea of resurrection. These were pagan concepts that Jews had already adopted uh, from Persians before them. They were actually developed by Zoroastrians. Jewish religion didn't have these things, but they adopted them later. So they do do this from time to time. But of course, they sell it as Jewish. It's not a pagan. They don't sell it as a pagan idea that they've imported. Um, Michael mentioned. He said. Uh, if Jesus died, he must have existed. That's a fallacy. Uh, we have tons of dying gods, Romulus, Hercules, Inanna, Osiris. They all died, too, in their stories. So we we wouldn't say that Romulus and Osiris and Hercules and Inanna must have existed because they died. That, that doesn't follow. The, the mythical story has a myth about them dying, and it's possible to have mythical deaths. Uh, so that isn't really a valid argument. So a lot of what he goes on trying to attest the crucifixion isn't relevant because... The view here is that Jesus was killed, crucified, in another supernatural realm, just the same way that Inanna was. Inanna was killed and then hung up uh, and nailed to, nailed to um, something, kind of like a cross. So, and that didn't happen, of course. That's a, that's a myth. But this is what we're saying happened to Jesus, is something similar to that. So crucifixion itself doesn't mean it's a historical crucifixion. And Paul never says he was crucified by Romans or, or tried by Jews or anything like that so uh but nevertheless, he does cite a variety of scholars and experts on this uh subject. He mentions Josephus attesting to this um, he quotes Feldman and various others uh, a lot of when he talks about the the ratio of scholars who think the testimonium is valid that's actually uh that's actually old news uh that was based on a prior belief that used to be popular within the field that an Arabic fragment represented an early version of the text. In fact, that's been refuted by Alice Wheely since, Uh, so this has shaken up the whole uh, uh, field of the study of the testimonium. Nevertheless, um, let's just assume that it is valid. Uh, In fact, scholars by the name of Olson and Goldberg, and you can check my bibliography and my book for their articles, they've demonstrated that the vocabulary of the testimonium is actually Christian and that, in fact, the whole story that's presented there derives from the Gospel of Luke. It's therefore not able to corroborate the Gospels because this is based on the Gospels or it's based on what Christians were selling at the time. It's simply just repeating what they say. So this isn't a corroboration. We can't use that as evidence. Uh, any more than anyone else quoting the Gospels is corroborating the Gospels. They're not. So then we're stuck with looking at the Gospels. He mentions Tacitus. Uh, That's the same problem there. Uh, I won't go into the arguments for that being an interpolation. I actually published in a peer-reviewed journal recently A case for that, Um, but I'm not going to defend that here, it's too complicated. Even if it's authentic, Tacitus is just reporting what Christians in the second century were telling him, and they were just telling him what the Gospels said. So again, this can't corroborate the Gospels. Uh, There's no evidence that Tacitus had any other source of information. Now, uh, Michael also cited 1 Corinthians 15, and this is key, Um, and I want to read to you what he says there. He mentions the idea that uh, the received and delivered is oral testimony, that doesn't necessarily follow because he uses the exact same words in Galatians 1, when he talks about receiving a revelation of Jesus. Uh, he says, the gospel I preached, I did not receive it from a man, uh, but it came to me through a revelation. And then when he talks about the gospel I preached, the exact same word, I also received the exact same word. And he repeats the gospel. That's the gospel he's getting by revelation. Now, he may have learned it from prior Christians. Uh, that's not what he claims, but that's, uh, that's irrelevant. But the, the key thing is, what is the content of that gospel? This is what he says that according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Kephas and various other people on various isolated occasions. Notice what's missing here. Jesus does not appear before his death. There is no reference in the gospel to him having a ministry, to him picking disciples, to anyone seeing him before he died. The only time in the gospel where he appears to anyone is after his death. The risen Jesus appears to these people. And you look at it, he's describing individual isolated experiences. There's only one event that Paul says appeared to a bunch of people at the same time. Uh, He says to 500 brethren at the same time. But we know these kinds of ecstatic trances in communal groups, these people could believe that Jesus was appearing to them as a light or a voice or something like that. So what we're looking at are isolated appearances of a risen Jesus appearing to them from heaven through revelations, not... Uh, a historical Jesus, the, the idea of Jesus being on earth before this and being seen by people on earth before his death, it's missing from all of the gospel, all the versions of the gospel in Paul, not just this one, but in all of them. So what we're looking at here is a peculiar case of the earliest documents suggesting that Jesus began as this revelatory being, and the idea of creating a ministry for him, moving him back into history, is something that was invented later. Um, and that's key because uh, Michael also showed that this, this gospel predates Paul. I agree with that. Uh, and so this is a very early Christian teaching. Completely, ma- completely lacks a miracle-working Jesus, completely lacks a ministry, all of that. Uh, he mentions that it's unlikely to fabricate a crucified God. That's simply not true. We have lots of dying gods. Uh, Inanna was a crucified God. Uh, her, she was killed, stripped naked, and, and nailed up, uh, and then resurrected again afterwards. So the idea of inventing crucified gods is not a problem for people, and in fact, uh, the idea of the Jews not being into this is also not true. Um, if I have time, I'll get into the actual theology that where Jewish theology would make sense of this. Um, <coughs> And he mentions a story would fit how crucifixions occur, uh, but that's actually true for all all myths, any kind of historical fiction. You're generally going to borrow ideas from things that you know. P- crucifixions happened all the time, so if you're going to describe a crucifixion, you're going to describe one that fits what you know. So that doesn't really attest that the myth itself uh, is historical. Um, <coughs> he also suggests the idea that no one would invent the fiction of a Sanhedrin burying Jesus, uh, the idea of Joseph of Arimathea doing so, um, that's actually not true if you're writing a, a, any kind of historical fiction that's, that's accurate to Jewish law, which Mark did not do entirely. Uh, the idea of having a trial on, on, on the eve of a holiday, for example, absolutely would never happen in, in actual Jewish law. Um, but if you wanted to preserve any kind of authenticity, uh, you would actually have the Sanhedrin bearing it. The actual Mishnah law actually commands that the Sanhedrin has the obligation to bury executed criminals. And they, there was even a, a graveyard that the Sanhedrin kept specifically for the purpose. Uh, so there's nothing peculiar about that if you're going to try and create a sort of uh, a historical fiction. But also the idea that Joseph of Arimathea, the word Arimathea in Greek means best disciple town. Uh, and Joseph of Arimathea in later gospels is actually even explicitly portrayed, the, go- the other gospel authors got the point, He's, they portray him as a secret disciple. Uh, So this whole idea is that he did the best thing, Uh, and the idea of giving the proper burial, following Jewish law, uh, is exactly the kind of thing you would put in the myth, because that's what the Christians were selling. The Jews were betraying their own laws, uh, but the people who follow the best disciples, who follow the best teaching, uh, will uphold Jewish law. And that's exactly what they depict uh, Joseph of Arimathea doing. So it makes sense within the context of the myth. The idea also that Mark didn't name the priest, therefore he wrote when the priest was still alive. Uh, It's also possible Mark didn't name the priest because he didn't know what the name was. Uh, So that doesn't really explain anything. We can't really get anywhere with that. Uh, He also says there's no competing burial story. Um, That's kind of misleading uh, because we actually have a completely... We know, for example, that the Jews who were combating Christianity outside the Roman Empire, who wrote the Babylonian Talmud uh, just east of the Roman Empire, the only version of Christianity they knew had Jesus being executed 100 years earlier, around 75 B.C., uh, under the regime of Alexander Janaius, not under the regime of the Romans. Uh, we also have this, we know Epiphanius, uh, centuries, around, centuries after the origins of Christianity, attests to uh, the original Nazorian cult. The actual original name of the Christians was the Nazorians. The original Nazorian cult was still teaching this, the idea that Jesus died under the reign of a 100 years before Pilate. Uh, so there was a whole sect of Christians that was telling a completely different myth as to placing Jesus in a completely different historical period. Uh, and that is something you'd more often expect for a myth, where you can put the, the mythical person in different historical periods as suited you. <coughs> uh, he mentions the fiercely monotheistic aspect of Judaism. Um, that's That's misleading again, because in fact the Jews in reality were henotheistic. They had an entire pantheon of angels and archangels and demons and so on. Even Paul himself calls Satan a god. Uh, He says he's the god of this world. Uh, So what it was is that they only worshipped and and delivered worship to one deity. Um, But there's actual evidence that they could actually deliver that worship through a a, a proxy, like an archangel. We have many examples of this. Bart Ehrman's recent book, uh, How Jesus Became God, He extensively documents examples of Jews worshipping other entities besides God, and their rationale was that they're worshipping God through these other entities. So uh, monotheism, actually at the time, it was henotheism, where you have one God over many other subordinate deities. Uh, And the idea that Philo has, he he talks about this divine being that actually did the creation, is not God, it's another created being that God created, this Jesus character. Uh, he actually did the creating. So the Creator God in Philo, and this is Jewish theology of the time, uh, the Creator God is actually not the God. He's a subordinate deity who was simply assigned the task by God. And this is a Jew saying this uh, before Christianity. So, and he, there's no evidence, no hint in this of being radical or, or rejected by mainstream Jews. They had ways of rationalizing it by having just the one supreme God to whom is owed all primary worship. Uh, Michael said you have to prove a causal connection uh, to claim that. uh, Like I mentioned that before, uh, the coincidence is massively improbable. The idea that you have the same fashion popping up again and again and again and again, and it pops up among the Jews, uh, and you you can easily show the the cultural vectors where the information is getting to Judea. Uh, There's no other need to resort to any other explanation for as to where this came from. And then he ends with the idea that no one would die for a fabrication. Uh, This is problematic because we actually have no evidence that uh, any Christians did die for a fabrication. Uh, The first Christians, like Paul and so on, believed that this was an actual historical Jesus in the same way they believed in an actual historical Satan or an actual historical angel Gabriel. They actually believed he existed and was communicating to them from heaven. So the idea uh, that they would die for this makes complete sense because to them it's not a lie. I mean, we can question whether there actually are angels and so on now, but To them, it was real, but it wasn't the same thing that we mean by historical Jesus as a minister who was running around Galilee at the time. There was a transitional period where there were uh, myths being created as allegories for this, uh, and then by the 2nd century, there were sects who were actually claiming that the myths were historically accurate. And then people started dying for uh, for the accuracy of these myths, but by that time, it was 100 years later, Uh, These are people who did not have any access to the original story, did not know, and were even being told by their leaders that the ones who were advocating for the idea of a non-existent Jesus were heretics and were therefore not the original cult. Uh, We have an example of this in 1 Peter, uh, the the epistle 1 Peter, uh, where he says that there were Christians preaching that the, the historical Jesus was a cleverly devised myth and then he says, but, but no, it's not a cleverly devised myth because we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then he immediately forges an eyewitness uh, to seeing Jesus in person. Because we know the mainstream view that 1 Peter was not written by Peter. It was written in the 2nd century. Uh, it was forged in his name. So there was this whole sect, and now we don't have any of their documents. Uh, that was all that was preserved, is this one mention of them. But it shows that there were Christians going around claiming that Jesus wasn't historical. He, the historical stories were just allegories. There were myths about the cosmic Jesus. Um, so we have all of this evidence, which uh, I think when you look at the sequence of events, you don't see a historical Jesus in Paul. You just see a revelatory being. Uh, and then you see these wild myths in the Gospels decades later, the exact same trend uh, that we see in all the other savior cults. Uh, When we see that, we should conclude that that's probably what happened. Christianity followed the same pattern as other savior cults.
1: Well, part one. Uh, part two is coming up, but before I do that, I have somebody that was kind enough to call a few times, and he's on hold. Let me put him on.
5: Hi, you're on the air,
1: 585. What's your name?
5: Hey, guys. This is Chad out of New York.
1: Hey, Chad. How you doing?
5: Good. Can you guys hear me okay? I got a uh, kind of a bad signal where I am.
1: No, that's pretty good. We can hear you fine. What can I do for you tonight?
5: Okay. Oh, well, I... I wasn't sure what kind of show this was, if you guys were open to talk to Christians, but I am a Christian. and oh,
1: I'm, uh, Although I'm playing solos so tonight, I usually have my co host here with me, but tonight I'm playing solos, so it's just you and I.
5: Just you and I, okay. Well, great. <laughs> uh, w- w- what is your name, host? I'm Kevin. Kevin. Well, it's great to meet you, Kevin. I, uh, I really am just interested in giving people the truth, and I know your audience... Uh, that you that are listening to you right now are probably atheists, uh, I would imagine. Uh, maybe you got some Christians snuck in there somewhere just to be curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, but I would imagine the major, majority of you guys are probably atheists.
1: You probably quit right on that. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, so tonight was a, a debate. Um, now, the the person I was listening to, was he an atheist, or is he somebody just sort of explaining the debate was he on the christian end how i i couldn't really tell i only kind um, of well, listened to a few minutes of it
1: yeah absolutely the the person uh, against the motion uh, saying that jesus did not exist is uh dr richard carrier and he's the uh, phd of uh, he's a historian out of columbia university and uh the uh for the uh, for motion is uh he's a master in philosophy his uh, name is uh, michael horner he studied at the University of Toronto, but now he teaches at the Trinity Western University here on the West Coast.
5: Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Well, what are your what are your thoughts on it? Did you think that the debate went well?
1: I think the debate was very civilized. It went very well, um, including in the uh, clip number two is coming up here in a minute. Uh, that they, they go back and forth for a little while. Uh, we did not include the... Uh, the question and answer period after that, because the show would have been probably four hours long. Uh, but it went by very, very fast. It was very interesting uh, yeah. back and forth. Uh, mm. But it was very and, uh Of course, there was a few uh, people that were a bit too passionate about the idea of uh, Jesus mm. not uh, being real. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I think it went very,
5: very well. Mm. Very interesting. Very cool. Well, you know, there, there are some questions I love to ask Atheists, You know, and something that I, I often get confused about is, and I, too, enjoy a good debate. I listen to a, many debates um, with guys like, uh, at least on my end, I like listening to Frank Turek and Matt Slick. Uh, I enjoy uh, a whole variety of people. Uh, William Lane Craig, I'm not such a huge fan of, um, Apparently but I think there are a lot of, Craig. what's that now?
1: Apparently, Michael Horner did study with William Lane Craig.
5: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, no- he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy, but I, I, there's a few things I won't get into that I just think, you know, there's there's a couple other debaters out there I think get, get to the point. And um, and I've been curious, and you know, obviously you're you're the only one that I'm talking to, so I think you're going to have to answer, you know, all the questions I kind of throw at you if you give me some time. Um, oh, I, I, it sounds like to me you want to get to this debate, so maybe maybe we should schedule another time where we we can talk longer, um, because well,
1: um, well, if, if you if you make it quick, if you give it a minute or two, I can answer your questions, but otherwise we'll have to make it to some other time.
5: Oh, we only have a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, well I tell you, you what. You only have a specific
1: amount of time to, to play the show. So
5: <laughs> sure. <laughs> we have. Sure. A well, I I understand. Well, I think with a topic like this, though, it's—I um, mean, first of all, the question I have is sort of a loaded question. In that, in that, I'm always often confused. Okay, mm-hmm. the same guys that debate. Okay, Dan Barker, Daniel Bennett. Uh, well, not. Uh, let's see. Well, those guys. I, I can't. Being on the radio right now, I can't think off the cuff. out the cuff. Uh, various kinds. Um, David Silverman is another one. They end up always getting in trouble with the same objections that a Christian will throw at them. And I think they're very valid and they're very important. But what I'm often confused about is the, the same atheists will take these objections they can't answer and then they'll go and debate them at a completely different convention or a different debate as if they didn't listen to the objection to begin with or they don't care what the answer is, they would rather just go from place to place bringing up the same stuff that, in my opinion, have already been refuted. Uh, For instance, one of the things that I often get confused about is how do we get intelligence out of non-intelligence? If we're just chemicals uh, or bags of biological stuff floating around the universe... Why should I care about anything or have any reason to believe in reason? I'm just really just a a product of my brain, and um, I didn't choose anything. I just reacted. Uh, that's not intelligent. That's just reaction. We're just reaction to previous natural causes. So I often get confused when I get into that with atheists. How do you answer that? Well, if you give it enough time, if you do this, if you do that, uh, we believe this, we believe that. And what what when I hear end up a lot of the times is they go back. Well, we don't have all the answer, therefore science. Now we yeah, get blame this question. Go well, ahead.
1: I I can understand that, but I think I think their are, their are answer is an honest one. What they're basically saying is we don't know.
5: Well, it's honest, yeah. but it's not. It's not, it doesn't answer anything.
1: Well, no, but you you have to remember that uh, about a thousand years ago, uh, people couldn't explain lightning. And even to this day, there are still some things we can't explain about lightning. Some people chose to explain by saying it was Zeus the tossing thunderbolt and being angry. That was an explanation, but that was not the valid one. So at wait, the, wait, at wait the time, it was reasonable Go to ahead. say, I
5: know, but eventually we will.
1: Without jumping to okay, Zeus. Okay, but,
5: but the, the problem, though, The problem is when somebody represents atheism, just like when a person represents Christianity, they're going in with, this is my worldview, you're wrong and I'm right. That's the whole point of a debate. But if you're going in with a theory, or I think, or I can't uh, validate it, or I can't know anything for certain, to me, that is an automatic, why are you writing books? Why are you telling us anything? Um, I do believe it was uh, Richard Dawkins who said, uh, to think that a man's mind, which has been developed by the mind of lower animals, can it has any validation to it whatsoever. Would you ever trust the convic- convictions of a monkey's mind if there was such a mind? So even Darwin had an issue with the way a person thinks and uses philosophy how does atheism explain intelligence? Now they use intelligence. I'm not mocking you. I think you use intelligence. I think Richard Dawkins uses intelligence. I think you guys use morality as well. But you, yeah. but as an atheist, um, I don't often hear consistency in your worldview. Uh, okay, because
2: be
1: uh, somewhat of a valid point of view. Uh, sure. But I think what atheists are saying are trying to say here is we're not ready to jump in because we don't have an explanation to jump in. It, it takes a fantastic leap to go from I don't know the answer to this to there's a magic guy in the sky that does it, and that's a
5: fantastic right, but, leap especially when you got nothing to back it up with. But okay, but then you can't mock Christianity because both in, in both cases. The visible guy in the sky is invisible, and you can't see it, just like logic is intelligent, and you can't see it, nor can you measure it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Same thing with morality. But yet you atheists love to hang your hat on things like philosophy. Uh, Yet uh, there there was a famous atheist who said philosophy is dead. I think that the problem is, is you're showing that you're made in God's image because if we didn't have any absolutes, then there's no reason even to have this conversation. So again, how do you explain intelligence? And you say, well, we can't really validate intelligence outside of materialism. Fine, that's consistent with your worldview. But my problem is, then why is Dan Barker and Richard Dawkins making a point to, in my opinion, mocking Christianity, which they do, you can't deny that, they have reason rallies. Why are you having a reason rally when you can't even validate reason?
1: Well, um, I think I think the point is not consistent with the worldview. It is consistent with what science tells us, and that on that we base the worldview. Now
5: you need philo- is- you need philosophy in order to do science. You can't even do you can't even do science without there being absolutes. How do you know that the future is going to be like the past? You can't. Because you're not, you're, you're not even guaranteed induction. No, absolutely. But, you know, it's like saying, you know, do you
1: expect the sunrise tomorrow? You have a reasonable expectation that it will. Uh, you can't predict for sure. The sun could die tonight, and it might already be dead, and we won't know because it takes eight minutes for light to travel uh, to the planet. But there's a reasonable expectation on all the available data that we've had throughout right. history. The sun will be there tomorrow. And... Uh, you don't need to go deep into philosophy to express something like that. Now to your second point when you were talking about uh people I am going to make this quick because I going to go to my clip here. Uh when people were mocking, I think I think uh, Hitchens made a mess. Uh ridiculing a point of view is the beginning of emancipation. Uh it's when 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 you can't ridicule a point of view, you're making a taboo. You, there's no there's no evolution on the subject. Uh, if you ridicule my point of view, this will lead to a discussion. It will lead to discussion with me. At which point we'll be able to exchange ideas. At some point, you might be able to convince me, or otherwise, you know, you might be able. To, I might be able to have to revise what I'm saying and saying. You know what? After the the evidence that you shown me, I have to recant what I've said. I was wrong, and that's where mocking kind of comes in. It's the it's the beginning of emancipation. Towards a point of view, when you cannot
2: mock, so, so in your yeah. worldview,
5: mocking is okay to do. Mo- mocking somebody, somebody's point of view, and being uh, malicious towards it is okay in your worldview. Uh,
1: I try to avoid being malicious. I, I prefer, I uh, prefer to use satire.
5: Uh, I think it but- leads to that. I think it leads to that. L- listen, the, the, here, here's where I have an issue. Okay. Hmm. You're mocking people mocking I'm not saying you. I you sound very lovely on the phone here and you know, you're you're a person who sounds like they get along with people. But where atheism leads and for our worldview is to absurdity because you can't validate nor can you even know you exist. Uh you can't know anything. Yet Christianity has certainty. So I don't know if there's a sense of jealousy in that, like their worldview has certainty and ours doesn't, so let therefore uh therefore, let's just you know make a mockery of it because it's so ridiculous to believe in a God yet it's the only worldview that validates why we have logic or can explain why there is morality or it can explain why we have intelligence, so I'm well, just confused I,
1: I, I agree with but, that, but that's okay you're completely entitled to your point of view, and you have well, right how to do we how do
5: we get? How do we have intelligence? Well, we we're not going to afford- according to evolution. Evolution doesn't tell you how you ought to behave, nor does it tell us how we should use logic. So how how, did we get in, how do we get intelligence?
1: Well, that's that's a bigger discussion than we have time for tonight, that's for sure. But I certainly invite okay. you to call back and we can address that.
4: What
1: but are but I I your you shows sure. not typically? Uh, we usually air every second of the week or so. Every,
4: day, small we, show. every
1: day of the week? No, no. Every second week, <laughs> usually on the weekends, one show every two weeks. Okay. But if you follow us on the uh, the RSS feed, uh, we'll send you a message as to when we air.
5: Okay. Well, I I do appreciate it, mate. I'll get to give give a call when you have more time. I do appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for the call,
1: and uh, hopefully enjoy the rest of the show.
5: Okay. Thank you. But now. He's well, a nice guy. I Appreciate that.
1: Alright, going on with the rest of the conversation. We kinda of took a tangent there, but we gotta hurry.
0: Uh Richard began with um the point that uh there's a mythical pattern. That uh, you can see the pattern of mythical uh dying and rising deities, um, in another a number of places. And his book he actually goes through a list of about uh About 15 kind of heroes that that I guess that that, that, that's a different point. That should maybe I'll I'll stick with the mythical pattern. Um, The idea that there is a mythical pattern though uh, that exists doesn't prove that the Jews borrowed it. There's a there's a huge gap between the existence of a mythical pattern and some Jews borrowed it to pull off this. begin this, basically this new, this new religion. Um, even if he's right that um, there was the presence of this view around first century Palestine, uh, he hasn't made a strong enough case that there was enough of a presence there uh, that it would change the mind of what most scholars hold to, that the Jews were fiercely mono- Theistic um I think he's just playing with words with his um henotheism here uh, for the Jews, they wouldn't have bought that argument for the Jews, their God was different, uh yes, they did believe in other celestial type beings like angels and so on, but for the jews there 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 was one God, and uh they were fierce about that, and they just most scholars agree that there's no way they would have let that in. Um, at least, not in significant numbers to make a difference. Even if Philo uh, um, is, uh, is accurate, as, you know, if as, as his view, that does not mean that the majority or even a large significant number of Jews held that view and would that easily let their fierce monotheism uh, slide. Um, moreover, just because uh, even if there was a significant presence there, it doesn't uh, follow um, with any degree of high probability that the Jews would have done something like this. I think Richard is, is moving really quickly from, well, it's there, it seems plausible that they could have borrowed from this, so therefore they did, and therefore it's probable they did. That's a huge gap. In his own writings, he says, possibility is not plausibility, and plausibility is not probability. And I'm afraid he moved way too quickly (laughs) from possibility to probability in his final uh, statement there at the end of his uh, remarks. Now, if God exists, if there is a God, then that changes uh, the probability of a lot of these things. It changes the probability that these types of myths would exist. Many scholars have written, for example, the whole reason I bought these books was just to kind of show them, many scholars have written uh, over the years that, God, that they have found within different cultures, stories, uh, uh, mythical stories and different things within cultures that make it much easier for the gospel to be heard and believed and understood. And uh, it would make sense that if there is such a God and you have to allow it unless you are saying that an anti-supernatural bias is a necessary requirement to be a historian and that would not be um, fair scholarship. You must allow for that possibility. Then it would make sense that God would allow uh, maybe even encourage mythical views to be developed that would be similar to what God would know would, would become the real story of a real historical Jesus coming and dying for their sins and rising from the dead. Um, because he wants people to, to believe that. And so that changes the probability. I think there's a hidden assumption here when you're calculating the probabilities that it's just, it's just wildly improbable that all these cultures would come up with this, this idea. Well, if there's no God, yeah. not if there is a God. It changes the prior probability especially. Also, the, the similarities and the differences between the, the pagan uh, dying and rising gods and the Jesus story are extremely significant. In Richard's writings and in his, his comments there, he implies that this really doesn't matter, you know? Uh, the scholars have made a big deal about the differences between Osiris and Jesus. And uh, Richard said, uh, "Osiris resurrected just like Jesus did." Nonsense. <laughs> Most scholars would say that's complete nonsense. Like his body is cut up in all sorts of different pieces and brought back together. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's so different from what Jesus' resurrection was like. Um, um, Richard said, well, but it's close enough. It, you can see where they got the story from. But you see how that moves us back from probability now just back to this, possibility. It's possible it could have happened. For him to make his case, he's got to make a, a case strong enough outweigh 2,000 years of belief in Jesus as a historical figure and the um, uh, the belief of the vast majority of scholars, many who whom do not believe very much special about Jesus at all, very critical scholars, but do believe that Jesus existed. Have you done that? I don't think so. I don't think the case is as strong as it might seem because so much of what Richard said is, well, uh, these, these scholars just just, uh, just did this recently and, and I just wrote this paper and proved this, and this guy proved this. But this is all way too recent. The majority of scholars still hold to a resurrected, excuse me, a, uh, an actual uh, Jesus. And um, Richard's book just came out in June. It's going to take some time to sort through these claims. We should be, not be so quick to believe Richard, not that he's lying, but believe Richard's Confidence in his claims that I prove this, or this scholar proved this, and now most scholars hold hold this view, because uh, I think the, there isn't not enough evidence for that yet. When the experts finally start getting a look at uh, his his writings and checking out his footnotes, then we're going to be able to find that out. Uh, I'm just not in a position to say much more than that at this stage. I only had basically the summer to work on it, and I knew <laughs> when I agreed to do the debate. There goes my vacation, <laughs> and that's true. I did not spend much time floating on my mattress at Culp's Lake like I usually like to this year. Um, um, but there just seems to be something um, overstated, and uh, I agree that after listening to Richard's case, it sounds very strong. But there are there are a, a huge number of ifs, a huge number of ifs, and based on claims that he he says he proved this and so-and-so proves that, and so on and so forth. Um, And and there are so many scholars that would just disagree with so many of his assumptions. So let me get to some of those uh, assumptions. The first one I've already kind of mentioned. I think um, hidden, whether deliberate or not, I have no idea, but hidden within Richard's uh, methodology In his book, he goes through uh, a number of axioms, a number of rules, and a number of elements. Um, And a lot of it is quite good. A lot of it contains very good uh, material on how to study history and so on. But I think hidden in some of them, because it's not explicit, is, first of all, an anti-supernatural bias. And Richard does say at one point in 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 his book that this book is written for people who hold to these basic assumptions. And if by that he means an anti-supernatural bias, then of course, should we be surprised that if you accept his assumptions, you're not going to end up with the historical Jesus at the end? I don't think you should be surprised at at all. Another assumption, and this is getting more, this is kind of responding to his responses to some of my points. Revelation. I made the point that uh, that Paul uh, is saying he uh, received and delivered uh, uh, truth, uh, a traditional uh, truth to the Corinthians, Richard's response was, well, if you look at um, Galatians 1.9, he uses that same word there and says he never receives a revelation from man. Well, this is one of those really iffy interpretations of Scripture. And in, in my opinion, based on what I've read, uh, Richard's case is full of very iffy interpretations of Scripture. If you read the context, the immediate context in Galatians nine, and the broader context, you can see that that, that Paul clearly viewed himself as uh, uh, as someone who saw a physical Jesus, not just a vision. Now, it was a different type of appearance than the other apostles. That's why Paul included his his appearance of Jesus, his experience of, of Jesus, in at the bottom of the list. But that saying says Jesus died and he was buried. There's no evidence that Paul thinks this happened in some sort of celestial realm. Paul would have been around in Jerusalem often when Jesus was there. In fact, I think there's a very good chance that Paul may even be an eyewitness to Jesus' existence and was probably even there the week that, uh, of, of, of the Passion Week. Um, the point is this, revelation... He's interpreting revelation as uh, something that is somehow ethereal, visionary, hallucinatory. Revelation in the scriptures just means something that could not have been arrived at by just human reason alone. So lots of things count as revelation. Jesus himself is revelation. Um, the story of the gospel is is revelation. Uh, stories about Jesus and the gospel from other people who met him. It's also revelation. It's not something that's way off in the historical realm. I have to wrap it up uh, there, and we'll continue on in the next rebuttal. Thank you.
4: <clears throat> okay. Um, he, A lot of that was a bit of hand-waving, complaining that uh, it's only a new proposal kind of thing, Uh, which is true, but this is how things change. Uh, This is the exact same situation we were in in the 70s, where we had 2,000 years nearly of the assumption that the patriarchs existed, that Moses and Abraham existed. Uh, And then a few radicals came along and looked at the evidence and started saying, well, actually, the evidence suggests they didn't. Uh, and their their view started to take, uh, people started to agree, yeah, you're actually probably right, and now it's the mainstream view. That's how change occurs. So we do have to be open-minded enough to allow the possibility that we've been wrong about this as well. Uh, And that's why it's important to go back and really look at the evidence, and we have to examine the evidence, and I provided all of that for that purpose. Uh, So we can't really resolve this by saying, well, it's 2,000-year-old tradition. Uh, That's not a valid argument. Uh, he also mentions uh, the idea that, uh, that we don't really have definitive proof that there was causal connections uh, between the, the mythosphere, the different cultural diffusion things going on. Uh, what I'm telling you is a simple matter of probability theory. Why would the Jews invent the completely the, completely the same pattern, like this, specific, this very specific unusual pattern completely recreated in a Jewish version? of this pattern that's all around them and all these other cultures and actually being brought into Judaism by pilgrims uh, from these other cultures. that's extremely unlikely. Uh, cultural diffusion is a far more likely explanation of that. Now, he mentions the idea, um, uh, the whole issue of anti-supernatural bias, and I can even propose uh, you can actually go on believing if you want uh, that Paul, what the original version of Christianity that I'm saying Paul was preaching, was true. Uh, that Jesus actually was a celestial being who actually did reveal himself from heaven to people. Uh, that's a, that's fully accepting the supernatural, and there's also at the same time no historical Jesus in Galilee. The historical Jesus is up there with the historical Gabriel. Right? So, that's an, so anti-supernatural bias doesn't really factor into this. The question is, what did Paul believe? Did Paul and their first Christians think there was a, a human man running around Galilee, or did they think that this was the Jesus that Philo talks about, the Jewish scholar Philo? was it this celestial being who underwent this this, uh, death and resurrection in order to save mankind? That's entirely compatible with this. Uh, I think cultural diffusion is a far more likely explanation, but if you don't like that explanation, what you're left with uh, is that the real story is not of Jesus, Galilee. That's a mythical thing. And he mentions the idea that possibly God planted all these other myths in advance to set people up for this. If that were the case, then wouldn't the message be that they're all myths? I mean, if these are precedents, God is laying down these precedents of these other myths, and they're all myths. God didn't make them real, didn't make them actually happen. The inference would be that Jesus is just one more myth. This time, it's the myth that comes into the context of Jewish theology. Uh, so we should actually, even when we look at that concept with the idea of God interfering in history and creating these myths to set people up for this, uh, acceptance of this idea, we still get stuck with the same claim, the same problem. That this looks exactly like all these other myths, and it looks like a myth. It's written like a myth. It has all the same characteristics of it. So possibly the original Christians actually did worship a celestial Jesus, and who was an actual existent of a celestial Jesus, and then wrote myths about him, exactly as God commanded other people to write myths about other celestial deities. Uh, so that's that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is you mentioned the differences matter. Um, well, they don't really because all the myths that have parallels to each other are different, right? You know, how Romulus died is different from how Osiris died. How Inanna died is how different from how Dionysus died. Um, But these are all dying and rising gods. The similarities are the pattern that's unlikely. Obviously, each time a culture picked up this pattern and and, and created their own cultural (laughs) version of it, they changed things. That's how syncretism works, religious syncretism, which you can Google that if you want to know, uh, that's S-Y-N. Syncretism, their whole idea of taking two different things and combining them to create a new thing, by definition, that cultural diffusion will always be different than all of the other precedents because it's been modified. It's been altered to be more Jewish. Uh, so the differences don't matter in that respect. And even if you were to be obsessed with that, we have an exact parallel with Inanna. Inanna is actually killed, nailed up, and then resurrected in a straightforward fashion. There's no, her body isn't chopped up or anything like that. It's far more similar. And we have lots of examples like that where the parallels are even closer. But the, the parallels don't have to be that close. They just have to be close enough to be unlikely to have existed unless there was some sort of cultural diffusion or divine intervention. Um let's see what else do we have uh, to discuss. Uh he did talk about um received and delivered and all of that. Uh the the problem with that is the the vocabulary is vague. It can mean received uh by directly by revelation or it can be received by prior human testimony. Um when Paul, I mean when Paul talks about this, he's very adamant that he didn't receive it by a human person. He received it by revelation of the Christ. And everybody agrees pretty much that that's what the case is. Paul himself may have well believed that what he was encountering was a physical person. In fact, I'm, I'm sure he did. Uh, that's what everybody who, who hallucinates an encounter with a spiritual being or a dead ancestor, and so on. Uh, we have examples of this. Uh, Native Hawaiians, for example, will often be visited by the resurrected dead of their of their family, um, and they can uh, until you know modern times when we started questioning it, they could actually genuinely believe that that's what was happening. Uh, they don't know any better, and the same. And Paul would be in the same boat. So we can't really confirm that this is a historical Jesus just because Paul thought it was a physical being who was talking to him. What's missing from the Gospels of Paul is these experiences, these appearances of this being before he died. Uh, Paul never mentions there being a ministry or anyone seeing him before that, and that's that's the key thing uh, that, that undermines the idea that there's anything else going on. Um, <coughs> He, uh, Michael mentioned a little bit about the idea of um, Paul gives no indication that he thought of these things as going on in a supernatural realm. The point being is that Paul also gives no indication that he thought of these things going on in an earthly realm. So we're left asking, well, which thing did he mean? And that's why we have to look at the evidence and interpret it. We know the idea existed that things could be killed and buried in in the heavens. Uh, Jewish lore at the time held that Adam was buried in the third heaven. Uh, So the idea of there being gardens and dirt and soil and stuff to bury people in uh, was an actual thing. So we really can't tell because Paul doesn't tell us. So we have to look at the pattern of the evidence. Um he says uh, the idea uh, that the Jews wouldn't believe it uh because they wouldn't they wouldn't worship another deity I mentioned Eriman Eriman thoroughly documents that in fact many Jews did worship other deities but and how they did it was by attributing it it was by proxy to the great one lord Philo clearly believed in a son of god who was a divine creator being uh but not the god uh and he was a Jew so and he was not a radical Jew in that respect either But the key thing is that Michael also says that he he was willing to concede that there are some Jews who would buy this, uh, but not a large, significant number of Jews. It's worth pointing out that Christianity was very unsuccessful in Judea. Uh, In fact, it was far more successful among Gentiles than among Jews. Um, So Michael just gave you an explanation for why that might have been uh, if you want to buy into that argument. But I want to like I said, the idea of a divine Jesus, even named Jesus, was already a Jewish idea when you see this in Philo. So there's nothing un-Jewish about that. How much time do I have left? Right. Well, I've covered everything. (laughs) So, um, let's see if there's any other nuances I can add. My worry is I've, I've forgotten something that could have happened. I think I got everything down. Well, I'll just mention that the general idea um, that we shouldn't be too quick to judge. Uh, I agree with that basic principle. Um, you have to actually look at the evidence. Look at what the consensus is actually based on. Don't just like cite the 2000 years of tradition and the, how 95% of scholars say a certain thing. Look at what they're backing their judgment on. What actual evidence do they present? And compare it with the evidence that I'm presenting and make your own call. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that the scholars themselves will start making their own call. Uh, Many, of course, if they're Christian believers, will have a very hard time making an objective and honest call uh, because it's a bit scary to admit that maybe this is what's the real truth of the origins of Christianity. Secular scholars might have an easier time of it. Uh, Some of them still are institutionalized and stuck on the idea. But I think and I suspect that as the years go on, we're going to see more and more scholars coming over to the idea that at least what I'm proposing is possible and that we might not know which it is. Um I know there are several there's at least two sitting professors who agree that we should be agnostic about the historicity of Jesus because the case is pretty good that he didn't exist, but they're not decided yet uh and there are other there are four other uh retired professors who are also on the same boat um so uh so yes, don't be too quick to judge, but when you do judge, judge it based on the comparison of the actual evidence on the case rather than simply resting on uh tradition and that's all I have to say. All
0: right, I began today's uh, debate by arguing that there are four good reasons to think that Jesus uh, was, uh, was crucified and it's multiply uh, attested. Uh, first of all, uh, Josephus. Still the vast majority of, of scholars would, uh, would count the testimony of Flavianum. Uh, as the the corrected version of it when you take out the Christian editions, which everyone admits were, were there uh is is more likely true, and so that significantly reduces um i think uh richard's case um, I said that uh, Tacitus also uh, uh, showed us that uh he was at least affirming that jesus uh Jesus existed even if it's not Um, even if he wasn't only reporting what what Christians told him, he had obviously reasons to believe it, otherwise it would be less likely that he would report it. Um, Third, that the Gospels themselves um, uh, also uh, give us, uh, in in every Gospel account, uh, we have a crucified and physical and dying and buried physical Jesus, and that these were based on earlier sources and Richard has completely skipped, skipped this and, and, and put all of his emphasis on, well Paul didn't uh, say anything specifically about that, but, the, but you have to look at the whole cumulative case and the Gospels are clearly physical Jesus is physical in the Gospels, he's very physically, he's tortured physically and, uh, and he even rises physically which is uh, remarkable uh, in, in itself And so just to say, well, Paul doesn't mention specific things about uh, that uh, that prove physicality uh, is ignoring the early Passion accounts. And remember, it's a strong case that they go back to in the the first early years. Uh, The idea that Mark didn't know Caiaphas' name, I'm sorry, that's that's just a stretch. That was not a very good response to the argument accepted by many scholars that uh, it's a good reason to believe that the Passion account uh, the source that Mark was based on, goes back to within just a few years after the events. And remember, even the more critical scholars, very critical scholars, like the Jesus Seminar, uh, admit that the Passion Accounts go back to within the first two to three years after uh, the uh, the events. I um, then I want to talk about, uh, and, and Paul, uh, with respect to the idea of revelation and what he received and, and delivered, um, Richard said, if I got it, everyone agrees that Paul received all his information by visions or something of that respect. No, they don't. Just the people that Richard wants to tell us about. The vast majority don't think that Paul received all of his information just from visions in some sort of hallucinatory sense. He may have received it from the appearance of Jesus to him, but Paul didn't view that as a hallucination or a vision in the sense that Richard's talking about it included in the list of the other appearances to all the other uh, disciples that are listed in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, in order to uh, raise the standard in people's minds that he was an apostle because there was some question in people's minds. They knew he didn't see uh, Jesus immediately after he was resurrected. It was a few short years later. But in Paul's vision, we, we know that uh, the people who were present at the time, in Paul's experience, as you're saying, were present at the time, there was, there was extra mental phenomena taking place. The other people who were around him at the time um, heard a voice even though they didn't uh, hear exactly what was being said and they saw light. So that doesn't happen in an hallucination or a vision. Uh, there's extra mental phenomena going on. So Paul's view was not that he was just uh, having visions or hallucinations and uh, I think that's just an assumption that is going on uh, based on the word revelation as, uh, as meaning hallucinations and so on. As I argued, it doesn't it. It just means something that wasn't produced by human reason alone. God had to reveal it to us. That includes Jesus being here physically, the people who knew him, who told us about him. That's also revelation. And, uh, and uh, it's virtually certain that Paul went t- to visit Peter and James and the other disciples, when they got together, you can be sure they didn't talk about the weather. They would have talked about the Jesus that, that they knew. He talked about... Um, i go back to my, to my here. Um, oh, the burial count. He says that the Babylonian uh, Talmud has uh, something that is a counter. But... The, the Talmud is much, much later. And if you're going to allow the Talmud in, the other later uh, uh, Talmud writings of the Jewish leaders, uh, centuries later, never denied that Jesus existed. Never. And certainly they would have motivation to do so. They never denied that he actually did wondrous deeds either. They just said um, he is, his, his power comes from Satan and he's a, he's a liar about who he is that affirms that he existed and if anybody had the motivation uh, to uh, if there really was no physical Jesus it would have been the Jewish religious leaders they would have got rid of that real early but they never did uh, the spread of, of Christianity um, and um, uh, first uh, how much time I have All right. Again, the first Jews were monotheistic. The idea that um, these monotheistic Jews uh, would uh, borrow uh, all these ideas, especially when there was really huge differences, um, if God existed and did allow myths to be created in other, other realms, um, I really didn 't understand uh, richard 's argument that that means that they would all, they were all myths. You missed the point of my argument. It was God setting the this the, um, the ground tilling uh, the soil so that when the real historical Jesus appeared, they would be more open to it because it 's just it 's just so similar to some things they 've had in their background and missionaries know that uh, this book tells all sorts of stories uh, uh, of that actually happening, traveling to different countries where there was different myths that was in their culture that made them quite receptive to receiving the story about about Jesus, uh, and that and that is a fact. Uh, you can be buried in in the heavens, but again, you've got to you've got to combine uh, this with the passion narratives, which are all physical, and it just doesn't fit with the, with the passion narratives. He says, "Don't just cite tradition." Um, I agree. Unfortunately, that's all I'm able to do given the amount of time I had and, and the fact that the book just came out in, um, in June, and I wish I could do more at this, at this point. But it seems there's some there's some fishy things going on here in terms of how much confidence Richard is, is claiming uh, compared to how much other scholars are buying into it, and just not that much. I look forward to when the experts get a really good look and can check Richard's sources I mean, in some of Richard's footnotes, he cites some of my colleagues from Trinity Western University as supporting his views, and I know that that's very unlikely, and I think those sources have to be checked before you should buy into what Richard is saying. Thank you.
4: Right. Um, Okay, so very quickly. He says Jesus was crucified. Well, Inanna was crucified. So the, that is not an argument for historicity for Jesus any more than it is for Inanna. He keeps citing Tacitus and Josephus. Neither of them give us any source uh, that could be credited as anything other than the Gospels or what Christians were telling them. Uh, we have for, as a parallel, we have Plutarch who tells us he writes the biography of Romulus, a non-existent person. Plutarch assumes he really existed and really died and so on. Uh, so just the fact that Plutarch says that doesn't mean it's true. We now can look back at the evidence and see that Romulus was invented um, centuries later than he was supposed to have lived. Plutarch didn't know that, uh, and the, neither would Tacitus or Josephus. They're just going to repeat what Christians were telling them. So that doesn't really help us determine what the truth is. They didn't have access to the truth as we would, not, would want it to be. Uh, we have, again, that in the stories like that Plutarch writes about Romulus, Romulus is a very physical person who dies a physical death. He physically rises. He physically flies up into outer space. Um, it's still a myth. Uh, just the fact that they're depicted as ha- occurring physically in a straightforward biographical fashion does not make it true. Uh, there's tons and tons of examples of myths exactly like that in antiquity, so that doesn't help us get to anything. Uh, he talks about dating Mark. Uh, Mark not knowing what Caiaphas is, not knowing Caiaphas' name, is a reason not to mention it. He says that's not a good argument. I don't see why it's not a good argument. It's as good an argument as any. Um, one of the first reasons someone would not mention someone's name is they're not knowing it. That's kind of an obvious explanation of that. Um, I think he kind of misrepresented the field, though, because I happen to know a great many experts, especially the most critical experts, uh, do not believe the passion narrative goes back uh, to antiquity. In fact, a great many experts think it was either invented by Mark or or, uh, shortly before Mark. So this is a myth, and they they all agree that the story is a myth. It's constructed out of psalms and so on. Uh, it's, it's It's an allegory for what's happening. It's not some sort of eyewitness account that they're reporting. And I document this extensively in my book if you want to see the case made for it. In fact, most scholars by far agree that Mark was written after the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, not only because he has Jesus predict the destruction of the temple, uh, but also because there are a lot of elements in Mark where uh, he's assuming the temple cult no longer exists. Uh, One of the examples is the withering of the fig tree, where it's been shown that that whole narrative the fig tree is actually an an allegory for the destruction of the Jewish temple and uh, uh, Hamerton Kelly is one of the scholars who's written about this you can again check my bibliography in my book to see why that is I discuss it extensively in my book but there's a lot of scholars agree that there's tons of evidence in Mark that he was written after 70 AD. So this is a this is a post-war myth. It wasn't a myth written uh, within years of Jesus' life. And we have no actual good uh, evidence that it was written any earlier than that. Certainly, Paul has no knowledge of it. He doesn't has no reference to Mark or any of the contents of Mark that are peculiar to Mark. Uh, he mentions um, the idea of Paul possibly getting information from prior Christians. I don't doubt that. Uh, whether Paul got information from prior Christians doesn't tell us whether any of that information contained a historical Jesus. So that that's really a red herring fallacy. We can't get anywhere with that argument either. Uh, and then for Paul's vision, he cites Acts. Acts is just an extension of the gospel. It's another myth. Uh, the book of Acts actually blatantly contradicts Paul's own firsthand account of what happened. Uh, Paul says that uh, when he had the vision of, of Jesus, he went away and, and evangelized Arabia, for years before returning to Judea, and no one in Judea had ever seen him by face, or none of the Christians in Judea had done. Acts completely reverses this; it has him go back to Judea almost, or go to Damascus almost immediately, then go back to Judea almost immediately, and he's actually starts in Judea with, and he's actually known to Christians in Judea before all of this started, before he even converts. So Acts is altering history. This is this is historical revisionism. Uh, so when Acts gets creative in describing the visions, this is again more mythology. It's not based on any actual historical accuracy. He mentions the Talmudic Jews uh, nevertheless attesting to historical Jesus, but I, I have to remind you, these are the Babylonian Talmudic Jews, not the Jews who are in Palestine. And in fact, the only version of Christianity they know is the version that places Jesus' death in 75 BC. In other words, they know a completely different myth. They know nothing about Pontius Pilate. They know nothing about the Romans being involved. They know nothing about a crucifixion. In this version of Christianity, Jesus is stoned and hung up according to Mishnah law. He's actually killed by the Sanhedrin. So that's the only version these Babylonian Jews have. And this is you know 500 years after the origins of Christianity, and it's still the only version of Christianity that they're interacting with outside the Roman Empire. That's significant. Uh, that's not something that we can dismiss. How can we explain that? It's very hard to explain. Now, when we look at the Palestinian Talmud, which unfortunately we don't have a complete copy of, there's no mention of Christianity in it. Uh, no clear mention of Jesus or Christianity in it. So uh, certainly no clear mention of Jesus in it. So we can draw no conclusions about what the Palestinian Jews were thinking at the time. Uh, and so the Talmudic Jews are in the same boat as Josephus and Tacitus. They're just repeating what the Christians they knew were telling them. Uh, they are not. They have no means to do independent research to find out what the truth was on that point. Uh, he... Uh, Michael mentions a little bit like monotheistic Jews wouldn't borrow a savior, son of God concept, um, but they would. Uh, and like I said, Bart Ehrman has established that this is actually has tons of precedence in Judaism. It's not, there's nothing unusual about it. Um, but the, the weird thing is, is the idea of suggesting uh, that God would set this up with myths. Um, why would God prepare for a real hero by setting us up with constant fake heroes? Um, that would be kind of like uh, setting you up for the opposite conclusion, kind of setting you up to expect that the, any new myth is going to be just like the past ones. Um, that, has God, that has God trying to trick us into thinking the myth is false. Uh, I don't think that makes a lot of sense uh, if we're going to try and have God interfering in history in this fashion. Um, <coughs> so he also mentions me citing uh, some of his colleagues uh, in support of my views. It's important to note that I cite them in support of specific facts and those facts support my views, I don't say that his colleagues support my theory, Um, but if facts that they believe in do support my theory inadvertently and through no uh, expectation of their own, I get to cite that. That's how scholarship works. (laughs) Um, So uh, how much time do I have? Can I just wrap up? Okay, let's see if I can quickly summarize. Oh no, we're only on second rebuttal. We're not even (laughs) closings yet. Oh, okay, I don't even have to do my closing. All right, (laughs) I lost track of time there. Well, once again, I've addressed everything, Um, and I I really don't have anything else to add at this point um, without making the debate more complicated than it's already gotten, so (laughs) I'll just uh, concede here and then we'll, uh, or concede my time, and then we'll um, move to closings.
2: All
0: right. I think the key point that I want to highlight here is that all the the gospel accounts about Jesus are physical. There's nothing in there that would make us think that this is some sort of celestial being only and that everything took place in a in um some sort of celestial realm including the life and death and burial. And so that means Jesus was a physical being who existed and left you, unless you just completely rule out any reliability of those, those accounts. And you can't just assume that. Um, now, it's true, you can't just assume that they're reliable either, and I'm sure that's what, what Richard would say, but there are good reasons why many scholars do think there are, at the very least, uh, kernels of historical truth. And to say that the Gospels are, really are just telling us about some sort of celestial figure, that all this happened in, in some sort of celestial realm, rather than what most people have thought 2,000 years, just seems so far-fetched. You need a very strong argument to beat it. Uh, he says, Mark was written after 70 AD. Yes, Mark was, possibly. But his sources are earlier. Okay, Mark was not written out of thin air. None of the Gospels were. They were based on earlier uh, sources. And my argument... Uh, was there were two arguments from embarrassment and from uh, the name of Caiaphas that put those sources to within just a few years after Christ. Paul, uh, Paul's info that he received from James and Peter, who were, uh, and James being Jesus' brother, uh, as is, is, is mentioned in the book of Galatians, as well as mentioned by Josephus, means that he's speaking with eyewitnesses. So that would be a good reason to believe that um, they are uh, giving us actual historical information. Unless you're just assuming that all this stuff is happening in the celestial realm for no good reason. Acts has altered history, he says. Well, um, this book says different. Colin Heman was a British uh, scholar before he passed away. wrote this fantastic scholarly book, The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History, where he shows over and over again how Acts... Um, is historically reliable wherever it can be checked. And um, if something is shown to be historically reliable where it can be checked, then it's reasonable to uh, to think that it's likely it's accurate where it can't be checked. And um, uh, Richard's claim that it's just altered history is just a radical view uh, that is not held by everyone. Why would God set set you up with uh, a fake uh, fake heroes and, and tricking us um, he's, he's not setting up people he's setting up people who uh, are in lands who were not where Jesus was lived and born and died but in other places where that story is going to come they have these myths in existence which makes it easier for them to accept uh, the story of, of Jesus um, how much time do I have? All right. Um, I, I didn't say the the burial account of Jesus is historical and it's early. The burial account is multiply attested in many independent sources. It's not just in Mark, but then Luke and Matthew seem to have their own source, um, and it's not the same as uh, as Mark's. And and then John is pretty independent of the other three Gospels. And so you have you have three independent, multiply attested, independent sources for this. Uh, J. D. G. Dunn says, Joseph of Arimathea is a very plausible historical character. He's attested in all four Gospels and in the Gospel of Peter. The creation ex nihilo of a sympathizer from among their number, San Hadrian would be surprising. And Arimathea, a town very difficult to identify and reminiscent of no scriptural symbolism, makes a thesis of invention even more uh, implausible. If Jesus really died, physically, like it seems to be saying in the gospel account, then he really existed. And that's the key point, I think, of the debate. Thank you.
4: Okay. um, So I've I've established that the pattern of these dying savior gods existed. So uh, you can come to your own conclusion about how likely it is that Jews would come up with the exact same pattern uh, without being influenced uh, by surrounding ideas. The idea of historicizing gods from celestial realms is an established fashion of the time. So there's nothing far-fetched about that. In fact, it was normal. It was actually the norm of the period. Um, and many of these gods were acting in supernatural realms, just like Osiris and Inanna, for example. Again, that's not far-fetched. Uh, the Jews, many Jews believed that Adam was buried in heaven. That's not a far-fetched idea. It was just one of the weird things they believed at the time. Uh, so these things fit the context of actual beliefs of the period. Um, and in fact, Michael hasn't given us any evidence placing the Passion narrative years after, just a few years after Christ. Just the fact that there are certain scholars who claim this uh, doesn't mean that their evidence holds up. So you can actually check that. You can actually go and look and see what kind of evidence are they basing that on? There actually isn't any. Uh, I'm telling you now, but uh, you can go check that for yourself. He cites Hemer, um, uh, the book on the Book of Acts. I have to tell you that that was panned by critics. Uh, when you look at the critical reviews in the academic journals, um, uh, it was not well received. Uh, many of his fallacies were pointed out by the uh, reviewers. Um, in fact. Uh, We know that Luke got all of his historical color by borrowing it from historians of other subjects, not of Christianity. He borrowed a lot of facts from Josephus. Whenever he starts talking about actual Christian history, we can actually prove in cases he's not only getting things wrong, but he's deliberately altering a story. And I showed you that example with with Paul. We have Paul's eyewitness account, uh, and Luke uh, completely changes it, like blatantly contradicts it. So that's a failure of history. He actually contradicts an eyewitness source in order to tell the story the way he wanted to tell it. So that tells you right there that we're looking at mythology. There's a lot of other evidence for this, and in fact it's the mainstream view that Acts is very much uh, mythology the same way that the the Gospels are. If you look at the commentary on Acts by Richard Pervo or the book The Mystery of Acts by Richard Pervo is a good starting point, but there are other scholars who agree uh, with that view. So that's actually not a radical view at all. It's actually a common view within the field. Um, Again... Uh, I'll I'll re-mention the fact uh, that I quoted again 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel that Paul says there. Jesus only appears in that gospel after his death. I want to call your attention to that again. There's no point in the gospel does Jesus appear or is he seen by anyone or picking disciples or teaching or anything before his death and resurrection. The first time he appears in that gospel is after his resurrection. That only changes decades later when we see Mark and the other gospels being written. Um. (coughs) Yeah, same same goes for the burial count. As burial count, we have no evidence that it's any earlier than Mark. When we see changes being made by Mark, Matthew and Luke, uh, by Matthew and Luke and John, they're just making changes to the story. The same way we see redactions of other myths. Uh, there's really no evidence that they're getting it from sources. And if you want to see the case for that, I have a whole chapter on it in uh, in my book on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, and I also cite there are scholars who agree with me that Joseph of Arimathea is an invented character. That's actually not an uncommon view in the field. Um, <coughs> So that addresses all of those basic things. But let me wrap things up in terms of what, try and get you back on track as to what the, what the case I'm trying to mount here is. So remember what I said earlier about the consensus being untrustworthy. Many scholars agree, it's not just me, uh, that it's based on faulty methods and often incorrect or overlooked facts. Uh, and that's what my two books actually aim to establish, citing scholars who agree with me on those points and then adding to them. Yet we have to treat this evidence, the evidence for Christianity, the same as we treat all other religions. The Gospels are no more true than the Book of Mormon or the Quran. We have to look at it with the same critical eye. How much fabrication is involved? We have to ask that question and take it seriously. All earlier documents, decades before the Gospels, they show only knowledge of a revealed being engaging in a cosmic drama. They have no knowledge of the Gospels or the Gospel stories placing Jesus in history. In those earliest letters, for Jesus, there is no ministry, no miracles, no parables, no disciples, no hometown, no named family or interaction with earthly authorities. Jesus just descends, dies, and reascends, and then reveals all this and other teachings in visions to the apostles. That's what we see in the earliest letters. And we see this every other culture subject to Rome, as I would mentioned, had their own son of God, a suffering or even dying savior in many cases, who granted them eternal life. If you were often if you were baptized into the cult. The Christian gospel is simply a lift of that same structural theological concept revised to make it palatable to a Jewish theology and worldview. None of those savior gods existed either, so we really have a reason to be suspicious of this to see whether it actually existed in the Jewish case. And also like them, Christianity borrowed a celestial divine being who was already a part of their prior Jewish theology, God's first created being, And agent of all subsequent creation. We see this in Philo. So we have a lot of evidence here pointing to the development in one particular direction, and it's not the direction that Michael is defending. Thank you.
1: And that was it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Richard Carrier versus Michael Horner. A longer episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. Stay tuned for our next episode. Soon enough, we'll be uh, showing and airing uh, our interview with Peter Bogosian, as
2: well as an interview with Dr. Joe. Coming up first. Well, until next time. Bye, I guess, until We Until next time, guys. We all have-